Good morning. To all of our dads, I want to wish you a happy Father's Day. I love and appreciate you, and whether or not you are a dad, I love and appreciate every single one of you. Thank you for being who you are and doing what you do and allowing God to use you throughout the week to bless your families, to bless your neighbors, to bless our community, to bless the world. Thank you for being who you are. We have been doing this series about family ever since Mother's Day, so I like to do a series on family from Mother's Day to Father's Day and talk about our growth, talk about our Christian growth, growing as disciples of Jesus, and then applying that specifically to our families. And I'm, I'm a sucker for transformation stories. I really love transformation stories, to see something go from this to that, to see something transformed in a positive way. You remember that show, The Biggest Loser? I don't know if that's on TV anymore, but I had a friend that was on that TV show, and I love to see his transformation, but I also love to see other transformations, people being transformed. I love to see houses transformed, remodeled. There was even a, a set of pictures I saw this week, or last week, of a man from Lithuania, and he had this old junky car and here's how he transformed it. He used expanding foam, that's the next picture, and sprayed it with, I don't know that this is a good way to transform a car, but I thought it was cool. He sprayed expanding foam on it, and then he sculpted it and painted it, and apparently it turned out like this. I don't know if that's a true story or not, but I thought it was pretty cool. But I, I love I love before and after pictures, don't you? I love pictures that sort of document the journey, that say this is the way things started and, and now this is the way things are. But I especially love, I love the idea of taking a before picture. Don't you love that idea? The foresight that it takes to take a before picture. The foresight that it takes to say, this is the way I look today, or this is the way things are today, but things are about to change. Here is where I am today, but tomorrow I will be further along. I love that. I love the foresight. I love the intentionality of saying, this is where I am today. Here's where I am today, but tomorrow I'll be further along. Tomorrow, I won't be the same person that I am today, so I need to take a selfie right now because this is the last day that I will look this way. This is the last day that things will be this way. From now on, things are going to change. And we talk about change all of the time, don't we? We come here and we gather together with our brothers and sisters in Christ and we open up the scriptures and we listen to Jesus we listen to the gospel. We talk about how we can change, how change is possible. We, we are encouraged to change. We talk about how we should change. We talk about the commands of Scripture, how we must change, how we can change and how we should change and how we must change. But then do we ever take a spiritual selfie and say, here's where I am today, but tomorrow I will be further along? Here's where I am today as a father. Here's where I am today as a husband. Here's where I am today as a mother. Here's where I am today as a wife. Here's where I am today as a son or daughter or brother or sister or grandparent or aunt or uncle. Here's where I am today. 
Here's the good and the bad and the ugly. Here's what I struggle with and, and what I'm dealing with. And here's what I tend to do and what I shouldn't do. But tomorrow, tomorrow I'll be a little further along. I may not be a lot further along, but I'll be a little further along tomorrow than I am today. How often do we leave here? Do we leave these assemblies determined to change? We talk about how we can change. We talk about how we should change. We talk about how we must change. And we say, yes, amen and amen, preacher. That's good. Yes, we, we can change and we should change and we must change. But are we determined? I'm going to change. I'm going to grow. Here's where I am today, but tomorrow I'll be further along. I'll be further along as a spouse. I'll be further along as a parent. I'll be further along as a son or daughter or brother or sister or grandparent. I'm not going to be the same person tomorrow that I am today. If it's true that we can change, if it's true that we should change, if it's true that we must change, then isn't it time that we take a, a spiritual selfie and say, this is the before picture, tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, I'm going to set about the journey of being transformed. And that's what we've been talking about in this series. And I've been challenged an incredible amount by what Peter has to say in all of these areas, all of these qualities, all of these characteristics that should be increasing in us. All of these areas in which I should be growing. But it's not enough to look at the word and to say, yes, that's true, Peter. We can change and we should change and we must change and then walk away and forget that we need to be determined to change. So if you got your Bible, one last time, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says, his divine power, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Again, let me remind us one more time that this change, this transformation that we're going through it's not accomplished by willpower, but by divine power, right? It's not accomplished by sheer willpower, but by divine power. It's his divine power that has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's not just sheer willpower. Sometimes we think that we, we're going to pull ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps. That's not the way it works. It, it's not accomplished through sheer willpower, but through divine power. His divine power has given you everything you need for living the godly life that he's calling you to live. And then he says, because of this, or for this very reason, verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort. So, so do you need willpower? Yes, you need willpower. Do you have to make every effort? Absolutely, you need to make every effort. But you make every effort knowing, knowing that it is by his divine power. That he's giving you the strength. He's giving you the power. He's giving you the ability to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. 
and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Last week, Matt did a wonderful job in, in talking to us about brotherly affection. And Matt mentioned how these, these virtues, these qualities, these characteristics tend to be tend to seem like they're, they're building upon one another. And I think that's exactly right. We talked about godliness, about having a God-word life, a life that is directed towards God, a life that is lived in reverence to God, a life that is lived in awe of God, a life that is obedient to God. And, we, and then last week we talked about brotherly affection in loving our brothers and sisters in Christ and today we, we finish out with something that the New Testament says over and over and over again. The mark of who is following Jesus. How do you know that someone's a follower of Jesus? How can you determine whether or not someone is a follower of Jesus? Paul would say, if you have all of these other characteristics and you could do all of these other impressive things and you don't have this, you have nothing. What is it? Love. Love. And so if a household is a Christian household, don't we want that? Don't we want to have Christian families? Then what marks a Christian family? What makes a family distinctively Christian? In addition to, obviously, their faith in Jesus, it's love. It's love. And not just love for other people that think like them. Not just love for other people that act like them. Not for people that live near them. Not just for people that worship like them. But for all people. In 2 Peter, Paul is, or Peter rather, is dealing with false teaching. But in his first letter, he dealt so much with how do Christian people, how do Christian people live in a community that persecutes them for following Jesus? How do Christian people live in a community where people don't like them because they're Christians, because they're followers of Jesus? How do you deal with suffering? How do you deal with persecution? How do you deal with the fact that people don't like you because you're a Christian? And Peter's answer over and over and over again is the same thing that Jesus told the disciples. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to them. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. Again, this is the previous letter that Peter wrote. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they accuse you of being evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now let me ask you this. What is the best way to ensure that people who call you evildoers see your good works? 
What's the best way for your persecutors, if people are persecuting you, if you're suffering for being a Christian, if people don't like you because you're a follower of Jesus, and you're supposed to allow them to see your good works, what's the best way to ensure that they see your good works? For them to be the recipients of your good works, isn't it? That's the way you ensure that they see your good works is you do good works to them. Who? The people who call you evildoers. The people who falsely accuse you. The people that seem out to get you. Peter says, this is how we love our enemies. This is how we live distinctively Christian lives in the world. In a world that's hostile towards Christians. Here's how we do it. We let them see our good deeds. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered... He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Did you know that almost every time the apostles encourage Christians to follow the example of Jesus, the example they are specifically pointing us to is the cross. That when the apostles say, follow Jesus' example, what they mean is, be willing to die like he died. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Why? Because he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He was being falsely accused. And Peter's writing to Christians who are being falsely accused, who are being called evildoers. Their community is saying, you're evil, you're wicked, you're bad. We don't like you because you follow Jesus. And, and Peter says, keep following Jesus' example. When you're reviled, don't revile in return. When you suffer, don't threaten them. Keep entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. Keep entrusting yourself to your father. That's how you follow the example of Jesus. Love your enemies. This is what the whole book of 1 Peter is about. It's loving your enemies. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, Bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Paul says the exact same thing in Romans chapter 12, doesn't he? Jesus says the exact same thing when he tells his followers that if someone forces you to go a mile, begrudgingly go a mile. Is that what he says? Kick the dirt every step of the way and say, fine, I don't have to like it though. I'm going to do what you say, but I don't have to. Is that what he says? No. He says, take their pack an extra mile. When somebody slaps you, turn, let him slap the other cheek. Paul says, Peter says, when, when you're persecuted, not only don't retaliate, don't retaliate evil for evil, insult for insult, reviling for reviling, but he even goes beyond that. That's hard enough, isn't it? 
That's hard enough. Just don't get even. But he goes beyond that. He says, to the contrary, or on the contrary, bless. Bless them. Bless them. Do good to them. Speak well of them. Do good to them so that you may obtain a blessing. Church, listen, let's apply this to our families. If you're a father or you're a mother or you're a husband or a wife or an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent or a son or a daughter, we all have a role in emphasizing this is the way Christian households are supposed to look. This is the way Christian households are supposed to look. And if our world is becoming more hostile towards disciples of Jesus, and that's possible, that our culture may become more and more hostile towards Christians, that's nothing new. And the New Testament tells us exactly how to deal with the culture like that. And if that's true, here's how we do it. Here's how we navigate it. Here's how we live in it. As families, we teach each other and encourage each other. We don't return reviling for reviling. We don't return evil for evil. We don't return insult for insult. On the contrary, when they insult us, we bless them. When they do evil to us, we do good to them. This is the way Christian households are supposed to operate. And then Peter goes on in verse 10, and he's quoting from Psalm 34, and he says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, righteousness is about turning away from evil, yes, but righteousness isn't just don't do evil stuff. It's also do good stuff. Do good works. To whom? Everybody. What, what, about, what about those people? What about those people that don't think like me or worship like me or talk like me or act like me or vote like me or whatever? What about those people? Do good to them. Do good and pursue peace. This is the righteous life to which we are called. This is the life to which our families are called. Look at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Listen to this part, because we're, we have a tendency to ignore this. Listen to what he says. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. Have how much fear of them? How much? None. Have no fear of them. Have no fear of them. Do not fear those you think or those who are in reality out to get you. If someone is out to get you as a Christian, the gospel says, have no fear of them. Why? Why? If they're out to get me, why can't I be scared of them? Why can't I talk about how afraid I am of them? Why can't I tell other people, you should be afraid of those people. You should be afraid of people like that. Why can't I do that? Because you can't love people you're afraid of. You can't love people 
you're afraid of. You cannot love people you fear. Here's what we do. When, we, when we're afraid of somebody, what do we do? Well, we either hurt them, sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally, sometimes we hurt their reputation. We either hurt them or we hide from them, but we don't help them. When you're afraid of someone, you hurt them or you hide from them, but you don't help them. You don't love people you're afraid of. And so over and over again, Jesus and Jesus' apostles tell followers of Jesus, you and me and in our households, have no fear of the people who are out to get you. If there are people out to get you, then have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Do not fear them. Love them. Do good to them. Who's going to harm you if you're zealous for, for what is good? Somebody might, but even if they do, you know who the judge is. You know who judges righteously. Entrust yourself to him and do good. This is the life to which we're called. Look, he says in verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We kind of stop there sometimes, don't we? Always be prepared to give an answer. Always be prepared to give an answer. I'll, I'll give anybody an answer for why I'm a Christian. Good. Now, but don't forget the next part. Don't forget the next part because he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Do we not see sometimes that by provoking us, by pushing our buttons, by prodding us with a stick, that when they provoke us to anger, if unbelievers provoke believers to anger, where we lash out and we put them in their place and we walk all over them, we think, ha ha, we did good. We put them in their place. Now, now we taught them a lesson. But don't we see Satan gets exactly what he's looking for? You have to prove them wrong. You have to prove them wrong through your love. You have to prove them wrong because they're saying you are evildoers. That's what the people in Peter's day were doing. They were calling Christians evildoers and they were pushing them and prodding them and poking them until they would lash out. And then they said, ha, see, I told you. I told you that's the kind of people Christians were. And Peter says, you have to prove them wrong through your good conduct, through your love, through your gentleness, through your respect. Always be prepared to give an answer, but give an answer with gentleness and respect. See, this this is the kind of household we need to be forming. We need to make sure that our families understand that we love people, period. All the people. Even the people that don't love us back. Even the people that may be out to get us. Even the people that hate us. We love them and do good to them because this is the life to which Jesus' people are called. Look back at our text at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8. And remember that he says, for if these qualities, all these qualities that we've talked about, faith and virtue, knowledge, self-control, 
perseverance, godliness, brotherly affection, love, all of these qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We all struggle with this, don't we? We all struggle with love. We all struggle to love those who don't love us back. We all struggle to love people who mistreat us. We all struggle with this. But we have to determine, I'm going to grow in this area. I'm going to strive in this area because, because his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And I not only can increase in love, I should increase in love. And I must, I must increase in love. See, a Christian family that doesn't love, a Christian family that doesn't love their enemies, Peter says is ineffective and unfruitful. A Christian family that doesn't love their enemies is like a fruit tree that doesn't bear any fruit. It's like salt that isn't salty. It's like light that's hidden under a basket. And Jesus says, that's worthless. Salt that's not salty, it should be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Nobody lights a light and then puts a basket over it. You're supposed to let the light shine. If you're a fruit tree, then bear fruit. And if we're not loving, if we're not loving our brothers and sisters, if we're not loving our neighbors, if we're not loving our enemies, then we're like a fruit tree that doesn't bear any fruit. So how do we do this? In very practical terms, how do we make sure that our families are growing in love? I want to suggest this. To increase the love in our homes, we must decrease our animosity, our apathy, and our anxiety towards others. Let's walk through that for just a second. In order to increase the love in our homes, we must decrease the animosity, the apathy, and anxiety towards others. Let's think about that. Think about the conversations that happen around our dinner table. Think about the conversations that we have when we drive in our cars on long road trips. Think about the conversations that we have when we're sitting around in the living room and we're talking about things in the world. Are we expressing animosity towards people and saying, I just can't, I can't stand those people or I can't stand that person or I just can't stand this thing. I just can't stand that. They make me so mad. I get so angry. And we're constantly, we're constantly expressing our animosity about and towards certain people and the level of love in our home decreases as the animosity is injected into our household. And if we're going to be more loving, If we're going to increase in love, then we have to decrease the amount of animosity that we're expressing in our homes towards other people. You might be right. You might be right that that this group of people or that group of people or people who do this or people who do that, they, they do frustrate you. I understand. But you're called. I'm called. We're called to love them. And if all we can express about other people is our animosity towards them, how are we going to love them? Or what about our apathy? 
What about when we express our apathy towards people and we say, I just don't care. Let them help themselves. It's not my problem. It's not my responsibility. And what difference does that make to me? If all we're expressing in our homes is apathy about people, how are they going to see our good works? We're supposed to be doing good to them. We're supposed to be seeking their welfare. We're supposed to be blessing them. But if all we're expressing is apathy and saying, I don't care, what difference does it make to me? That's not my problem. That's their problem. Then how are we going to love them? And how about when Peter says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But yet all we can express in our homes sometimes about certain groups of people that think a certain way or do certain things or vote a certain way is our anxiety. Well, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? What if they do this? What if they do that? You cannot love people you fear. You'll either hurt them or you'll hide from them, but you won't help them. Church, if we're going to have homes of love, love, love for each other in our home, love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, love for our neighbors, love for our world, and even love for our enemies, then we have to decrease the amount of animosity and apathy and anxiety that we have in our homes and remember the life to which we are called. See, we are called to this sort of love because this is the sort of love that saved us. This is the love that saved us. Love for enemies is the love that transformed you. It's the love that transformed me. Loving his enemies is what Jesus was doing when he died for you, when he died for me. We were his enemies, and we were transformed by his love into his family. That's the love that saved us. When Jesus says, love your enemies, he lived it out when he died for you. He lived it out when he died for me. And so it's no wonder that this is the love to which we are called. Love for our neighbors, love for our brothers and sisters, and even love for those who hate us. And this is the love that we have to make sure is a part of our households. So if there's somebody this morning and you need prayers or encouragement to be transformed or to continue in your transformation journey, or you're ready to begin your journey of transformation by being baptized into Jesus, if there is any way we can help you this morning, now is a great opportunity to come forward as we stand and sing this song.